Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. Thomas Sowell, American economist, social theorist, political philosopher and author. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 26.4, The First Anglo-Dutch War, part 2. Last time we set the scene between England and the Dutch, this time we're going to try to go further and get across the differences that existed between the two as empires, despite the professed English desire for union. I also hope to make clear the extent of the Dutch's primary position as world trade leader, and its sprawling empire of merchant vessels and economic interest that tied it to the rest of the world, and the rest of the world to it. I don't want to talk any longer than necessary, so I'll simply jump right into it. I'll now take you to the year 1651. The 1651 English Embassy, headed by Oliver St. John and Walter Strickland, the latter of which had spent seven years in The Hague, attempted to test the waters and see whether the Dutch Republic would in fact be receptive to their generous offer of a union. However, they would be greeted with the same answer as had been given in the previous years. In addition, many of the regions of Holland that greeted Strickland and St. John's Embassy were the same individuals who had been warned in the years before by Strickland of the dangers of offending the Commonwealth. Strickland had, in 1649, been a resident rep and mouthpiece in The Hague for the continued English offers of union and close cooperation between both republics. Strickland had then warned Holland against the dangers of not returning the affection of the rump, noting that, 
your dear and very considerable interests will be placed in a position of great peril. These not at all veiled threats from Strickland spooked the states of Holland enough to bring it to the attention of the states general. Some believed, even at this stage, that the Commonwealth wanted to exploit a breach in the relationship between England and the Netherlands so that they could have an opportunity to attack Dutch trade, which, one member of the states of Holland claimed, glitters as golden mountains in their eyes. Such concerns were placed on the back burner as the rump became very busy after 1649, quelling royalist revolts in Ireland and Scotland, with the job not even fully complete by the time the Embassy of St John in Strickland was sent over in May 1651. Perhaps some in the States General believed that the danger posed by the Commonwealth had passed altogether, yet they had good reason to suspect that England was jealous of the Dutch success, successes that had granted it the position of the wealthiest and most prosperous maritime nation of its time. At its peak in 1670, the historian K.D. Haley, in his book, The Dutch in the 17th Century, notes that the extent of worldwide Dutch shipping reached 568,000 tonnes, a figure greater than the comparable trade fleets of Scotland, England, Spain, Portugal and France combined. 80,000 men were estimated to be sailors in Dutch service in 1670. Some, of course, were not Dutch by birth, but had been lured into the naval service by the promise of solid money-making guarantees. The apparent reliability of the Dutch trade, not to mention the promise of adventure that the world-reaching scope of Dutch travel guaranteed, drew many a mercenary into Dutch service. By the middle of the 17th century, the Dutch regularly sent and received vessels from Russia's White Sea coast, from its American New Netherland colony, from its lucrative West Indies trade off Brazil and the Caribbean, from its established presence along the Indian coastline, from its penetration into South and West Africa that brought with it an abundance of slaves to work its prosperous plantations, and from its commercial development of modern-day Indonesia that began in 1602 when the East India Company received an official charter from the States General. The East India Company, which would become the Dutch East Indies in 1800 after the company went bankrupt, and then Indonesia after World War II, was perhaps the most lauded and exotic manifestation of Dutch trade. It was certainly profitable, and saw over half a million Dutch and other Europeans sent in the name of the Dutch to the region over a 100-year period. It was also prosperous. Slaves churned out the goods like pepper and exotic spices that Europeans would pay top dollar for, and couldn't get enough of. After they had virtually expelled the Portuguese from the region by 1636, the East India Company's profits began to soar. It operated much like its equivalent Dutch India Company, or the English East India Company, clearly not much imagination was expended when naming the business ventures, in that they could essentially operate independently of their home state. They established contact with foreign rulers, declared local wars, founded colonies, expanded operations, declared war on the reps of other European powers in the region, all in the name of the precious goods that were sent on the long, arduous journey home to Amsterdam. As beneficial as the eastern trade companies were to Dutch prestige, image and coffers though, the Baltic trade routes closer to home were surprisingly far more lucrative than those of a foreign nature. The control of the Sound was still in possession of Denmark, but the routes in and out of these lanes were in firm control of the Dutch pioneers and merchants 
who had petitioned over the years for an increased Dutch presence. The Baltic trade could offer much in the way of timber, pine, oak and other essential forestry vital for the construction and maintenance of the merchant navy that was the Republic's lifeblood. The Dutch were of course not alone in requiring these resources for shipbuilding, but their merchant marine was by far the largest of any other power during the period. The Baltic also showed its worth in commodities like fish, caviar, furs, flax, hemp, tar, tallow, whale fins, rhubarb, masts, cordage and soaps that were to be found in abundance. The North Sea, just to the right of Scotland, hosted a community of Dutch fishing vessels that enjoyed a complete monopoly on what was taken in there. It wasn't just even the fact that the Dutch naval presence in the Baltic Sea guaranteed that such goods would be transported on a Dutch ship to or from its destination. Dutch entrepreneurs had also invested heavily in Swedish mining for the sake of copper and tin, as well as Polish grain and Prussian forestry programs. The profits of these ventures, because most had been established with the aid of Dutch capital from the approval of Holland or Zealand or another province states, would generally flow back into the Republic. Yet, not even with the examples of the extent of Dutch trade can the whole story of Dutch maritime excellence be told. K.D. Haley notes that the Dutch impact was cultural and political, as well as economic. Quote, It seemed as if the trade routes, not merely of Europe, but of all continents, were being made to meet in the Netherlands, and particularly at Amsterdam. Dutch sailors left a permanent mark on the map of the world. From Spitsbergen to Cape Horn, and from Brooklyn to New Zealand, the geographical names given by them are still in use. Podcast footnote. Spitsbergen, in case you haven't heard of it, okay, realistically you probably haven't, is one of Norway's northernmost islands and was discovered by the Dutch in 1596. Its name means pointed mountains because it has lots of well-pointed mountains. It was used mostly by the Dutch as a whaling and fishing outpost until the late 19th century when it was largely abandoned. The mining of coal gave it a new lease of life, but it's now only really inhabited by a Norwegian research and a Russian mining group. Just so you know. End podcast footnote. Indeed, for many decades, the maps themselves were generally Dutch. The Dutch publishers led the way in the production of more general maps and atlases in the 17th century. End quote. The reasons for the incredible levels of Dutch success in maritime trade that enabled Amsterdam to become the financial and monetary capital of the world for a century can be found in its foundations. The Netherlands were prosperous even before their violent split from Spain. This of course explains why Spain was so determined to fight tooth and nail to retain them for 80 long years. The geographical positioning of the Netherlands, the rich and developed state that the rising ship and dockyards emerged from, have a lot to do with the Dutch success. But what made the Dutch so exceptional were their attempts to take the war to their enemies by attacking their vulnerable points, i.e. their far-flung trade routes. Once they had been seized and the enemy defeated and the state enriched, would any sane policymaker vote to leave? Such a policy of acquisition is clear in the Dutch war against Portugal, which lasted from 1601 to 1661, and saw the Dutch gain in Indonesia and India at the expense of Portugal, who gained a consolidated Brazil and Angola. The Dutch sailors had, because of their geographical positioning, always taken to the sea with fervour. It just so happened that the circumstances were ripe to exploit the weaknesses of others, like the Portuguese, 
and copy the money-making tactics of enemies, like the Spanish. Since the Dutch suffered neither from the vulnerability of Portugal, nor from the entrenched corruption, at least not yet, of Spain, and since the more it expanded the more it gained in reputation, money, goods and prestige, the war with its Iberian rivals was both a blessing and a curse. It meant that no Dutch trade could pass to either Spain or Portugal, who both constituted a large bulk of its later trade revenue. But it also meant that the Dutch could expand its empire by force, and pull out some very audacious acts, like the 1629 seizure by Piet Hain of Spain's entire American silver fleet, worth a whopping 15 million florins. When the war ended with Spain, direct trade resumed in earnest, with both sides keenly aware of the money to be made and letting bygones be bygones. A wealth of confidence had followed the Dutch realisation in 1648 that they were the victors in the war against their old oppressors, and that throughout the continent no other state could rival their success nor boast of such sweeping returns on their investments. If I could go back in time, I would have loved to have seen Amsterdam in its heyday. The Dutch city had become the capital of marine insurance, oozing confidence as the port buzzed with activity. Shares in the numerous companies were speculated upon here, as Amsterdam became Europe's Wall Street. She also became Europe's foremost commodity market, boasting immense storehouses of grain from Poland, copper from Sweden, wool from Spain, tobacco from America, sugar from Brazil, and spices from Indonesia. Amsterdam set the prices for these luxuries as well as selling them on, while its insatiable merchants established monopolies in the Russian grain market, as well as in some of West Africa's most notorious slaver markets. Haley also adds that, quote, One special form of which deserves mention is that in arms and munitions of every kind, based on connections with the foundries in the bishopric of Liège, and copper and iron supplies from Sweden and elsewhere. Cannon and gunpowder were supplied with complete impartiality to allies, neutrals and enemies, and Amsterdam was still one of the main munitions markets of Europe at the time of the War of the Austrian Succession in 1740. End quote. The manufacturing of textiles in Leiden, linen industries in Harlem, and glass blowing, soap boiling, tobacco curing, and diamond cutting all took place within Holland, or at least somewhere nearby it. Amsterdam's entrepot trade, or in other words, its ability to transform itself into a gigantic warehouse and become the middleman for the world's economic needs, ensured that the states surrounding it would have to call upon it to do effective business, to acquire the goods that were up for grabs or simply to peruse the varied wares on display. Thus, the success of the Dutch Republic was multi-layered. It depended on what Europeans invested, bought, and needed, and it depended upon what the Dutch grew, stole, bought, or invested in across the world. Its most critically needed resources were probably grain from Poland and Prussia, and timber stores for shipbuilding, that could be found in the dense Baltic forests but it compensated for these needs by having such a gigantic surplus of trade in other areas. Having defeated Spain, free from external commitments and largely free from internal strife, the Dutch Republic looked certain to realise what in 1651 appeared only natural, its further economic domination of the world through a golden age of continued expansion, investment and empowerment. The sky must have seemed the limit to those Dutch merchants who dared to dream that their success could continue for as long as water remained within the oceans. How they must have marvelled 
at the apparent ease with which such a small corner of Europe had now become the envy of it. Perhaps it was the glittering of their gold, the sweet smell of their produce, or the sheer weight of their profits that convinced these same Dutch merchants and their government benefactors into a corner. Perhaps it was these successes that blinded these men to the danger that, having achieved and gained all they had, having built all they had built, and having created such an effective system, that a new enemy would attempt to take it all away. Anglo-Dutch competition was nothing new in the 17th century. For years, despite remaining nominally on the same political side, economic competition in America, Russia and Africa regularly brought out the ugly side of the lauded Anglo-Dutch relationship. New Netherland was the representation of the Dutch presence in North America, and it lay along the east coast of the United States, constituting the bulk of the mid-Atlantic states of New York, New Jersey, Delaware and Connecticut with small outposts in Pennsylvania and Rhode Island. It was a fairly badly planned and haphazard venture. This was called the West India Company, and it always seemed preoccupied by the prosperity and protection of its lucrative Caribbean islands, rather than its mainland American settlements, though the West India Company was supposed to be responsible for both. And the small trickle of permanent Dutch settlers that did relocate to America suffered quite badly for it. It didn't help, of course, that the English had the definite upper hand in terms of population and settlement in the New World either. Such factors led the new governor of New Netherland, Peter Stuyvesant, to draw up what he called the Description of the Boundaries of New Netherland in 1647. The document served a dual purpose. It was intended to show back home in the Netherlands how gravely in need of attention the colony was, as well as justify to foreign traders the actual continued presence of the colony. In particular, as it concerns us here, the document referenced the greater English strength in proportion to the Dutch in the area. Benjamin Schmidt, author of the fascinating article, Mapping an Empire, Cartographic and Colonial Rivalry in 17th Century Dutch and English North America, notes of Stuyvesant's intentions. Quote, He aimed to set the record straight on Dutch prerogatives abroad and to preempt any further English usurpations, as he called them, or larger scale conflicts. For, whatever the imbalances in America, the Dutch enjoyed the right of prior possession by their governor's estimation, in recognition of their pioneering efforts in the early years of the century. From as early as the 1610s, Stuyvesant argued, the States General had chartered commercial companies to explore and settle these uninhabited lands. And the Dutch West India Company, founded in 1621, had taken great pains to compensate the Indians for the rights to the same. Any English claim to Dutch lands could thus justifiably be ignored. End quote. Arguably, this anecdote could be excluded from the wider examination of the war, but since we know that in later Anglo-Dutch conflicts, New Amsterdam, the quintessential capital of New Netherland, would be captured by the English in 1665 and develop into the megatropolis that is New York, I feel the reference here is useful. Podcast footnote. I also feel that I should clarify that I invented the word megatropolis, and if it hasn't been copyrighted as a term already, you have official notice that it now is. End podcast footnote. The force of the English presence is little felt elsewhere in the Dutch orbit, with the exception of the Anglo-Dutch competition for Russian contracts along the White Sea. The Dutch rarely had to contend with English vessels in Indonesia, 
though the English were beginning to follow the European lead and establish trade ventures on the Indian coastline in the name of their own East India Company. And we all know how that would turn out. The Dutch were clearly both troubled and insulted by the English encroachment in America, which was considered their land since, as the ancient saying goes, we were here first. Indeed, to prove the inherent Dutchness of New Netherland, Stuyvesant consulted the old Dutch maps of the region in the more accurate Dutch attempts at cartography that had begun in earnest in the late 1610s, but on a smaller scale before that. In his document, Stuyvesant contended that We shall now state how long and how wide the limits of New Netherland can be asserted along the coast, inasmuch as it has been discovered and frequented by the Dutch nation, in virtue of the above-mentioned West India Company charter long before any of the English visited that coast, as can be demonstrated by old maps whereupon the islands, bays and rivers stand recorded by Dutch names. The use of maps, a logical, frequently accessed device for demarking one's sphere of influence in the past, as well as in the future, the scramble for Africa comes to mind, would of course be ignored by an expanding English and retreating Dutch-American presence. This simmering and resentful conflict between Englishman and Dutchman provides an insight into their complicated relationship of the time. It makes it all the more extraordinary that the rump insisted on forming a closer union with the Dutch, knowing full well that the nature of imperial competition across the world, like here in America, would somewhat take away from the sincerity of the English offer. If the English want to join their republic to ours, to signal their willingness to unify their interests with ours so badly, the Dutch could bemoan, then why do they continue to encroach and threaten our foreign interests, as though we were not allies, but enemies? This American example is but one of the niggling issues that the Dutch had in mind when they received the May 1651 proposals for union, not to mention the numerous other instances when the English had acted as rival rather than potential partner. Such issues thus led the Dutch to contend that the offer of union was not meant to conjoin English and Dutch fortunes, but constrain Dutch interests, and ensure that it was England, not the Netherlands, which prospered under a sprawling republic dominated from London. It didn't help, of course, that the rump had spent the preceding years effectively conquering its neighbours in Ireland and Scotland, only to then proclaim a Commonwealth of Nations across the British Isles. The only thing that Ireland and Scotland appeared to have in common, the Dutch surely noted, was that they had been conquered or were in the process of being subdued by the English powerhouse. Such a lopsided agreement did not a Commonwealth or Union make, even if this time the rump was attempting to use the pen, rather than the sword, to expand its dominion. The English were also decidedly at a disadvantage when it came to issues of economic competition with the Dutch. The Civil War had annihilated whatever competitiveness they had accrued over the years, while the sudden emergence of the Dutch into a period of peace meant that, just as the rump was puffing up its extremist chest and embarking on an unwise and undeclared economic war with France, the Dutch were snatching this, as well as the Spanish trades, from under their nose. Considering how different the two states actually were, it may seem bizarre that a union was proposed at all. But security remained the paramount issue to the rump, and in its quest to find an ally on the continent, it pursued the only lead it felt tenable. In some ways the republics did share similarities, but nowhere near the level naively suggested by Strickland and St. John when the embassy arrived in May 1651. In previous years, when the Dutch had felt less than confident in the durability of the rump, offers of union had been cautiously turned down. Although in turmoil, Walter Strickland in 1649 had made belligerent gestures towards the states of Holland 
which, as you will recall, spooked the Hollanders enough to bring the issue to the attention of the States General. 1649 was a more complicated time. William II and Charles Jr. were in regular contact, while the remnants of Charles I's allies had not yet been defeated in Ireland or Scotland. The very fact that since 1649 the rump had acted to tackle these problems caused the Dutch to act more procrastinatory than they normally would. Expecting little from a divided Commonwealth distracted by the need to enforce its authority in Ireland and finally defeat the Scots, which it would in November 1651, the Dutch presented to the English delegation 36 articles. These articles had emerged only after much debate from the seven provinces, who had eventually followed Holland's lead and agreed on the course of action. The 36 articles were not what the English had desired. They were mostly a reworking or rewording of the previous Intercursis Magnus, a commercial treaty between Henry VII of England and Philip IV of Burgundy in 1495. In that treaty, both sides, as well as Venice, the Hanseatic League, Florence and other minor states, agreed to a series of economic principles, mostly at the time to the detriment of France, whom Philip IV of Burgundy was then on sour terms with. Despite the fact that I just made the 1495 agreement sound not especially significant, English and Dutch negotiators alike clung to it as the pretext, in the former case, for advancing the case of union, and in the latter, for keeping things as they were. The Dutch did not appear capable of giving the English delegation what they wanted, and in his article, The English Civil Wars as a Cause of the First Anglo-Dutch War, 1640-1652, Simon Gronveld maintains that what the rump wanted above all were guarantees, promises, and commitments that the Dutch were inherently unable to give. Quote, a comparison of the English documents and the first eleven of the Dutch articles produced new text, which became the subject of heated discussion. In St. John's eyes, these were not sufficient to guarantee strong measures against his party's enemies, i.e. the expulsion from the Netherlands of the Stuarts, related by marriage to the House of Orange, or an embargo on the carriage of contraband goods. End quote. Pursuing the objective of security throughout the negotiations, St. John and Strickland were immensely frustrated when the Dutch would not satisfy their demands. St. John claimed that his state required a nearer union than formerly hath been, while requesting that the states general get on with it, stop tiptoeing around the issues, and declare whether or not they would grant such a request. The Dutch negotiators mostly brushed the sorest of issues to the side, though, and continued to evade specifics until the economic issues of the agreement came up, of which they were able to speak about a lot. Such developments reflect how untimely the whole arrangement was. The English-run parliament only cared for their security. The Dutch only cared for their money. In June 1651, the English returned to London with a request that the Dutch send an embassy of their own in the near future to the Commonwealth to discuss the issues further. At this stage, the Dutch were under the odd impression that the issues they had dodged were mostly agreed upon by the Rump's delegates. In other words, a union had been accepted as desirable, but for their moment impossible, and that economic issues should be discussed at length in their place. Yet, when the English delegation returned to the Rump Parliament, it gave a frustrated account of its experience, contrary to the Dutch impression that... We never conceived or said that they had given us satisfaction to our proposition, but on the contrary, at all the debates, and by our papers declared, our dissatisfaction within. The Dutch acted slowly and without much haste, but they did conclude that sending an embassy to continue the talks would be necessary. 
In late December 1651, a deputation of men from Holland and other provinces arrived, all designed to represent the varied interests of the Republic, and once again providing a manifestation of the painfully slow decision-making process that the rump had come to loathe of the Dutch. By January 1652, the optimism of the Dutch, or perhaps their naivety, had mostly vanished. The previous months had borne witness to an increasingly hostile English host. The frosty reception soon turned icy and then blizzard-like when successive English acts demonstrated to the Dutch that the Commonwealth perhaps did not have its interests at heart after all, and that instead of seeking to resolve the commercial differences of the two sides, the rump seemed content only to aggravate them. The defeat of Charles II's forces at Worcester in November 1651 signalled the effective end of local opposition to the Commonwealth in the British Isles. Royalist privateers remained, some utilising incredibly effective tactics to stay afloat, while the remnants of the Stuart Court languished abroad and its loyalist defenders fought as soldiers for hire, but for all intents and purposes, the Royalist cause lacked a cohesive strategy or strong sponsor, and without either, the Rump was able to end the Third Civil War and officially bring to an end the Civil Wars that month. Unofficially, of course, some outstanding issues remained. The very mention of the House of Stuart in the demands of the English delegation exemplifies the level of threat that the Rump felt from Loyalist pariahs and what they might do when supported by foreign family ties, such as, in the Dutch case, the currently out-of-favour House of Orange. It is likely that the Dutch did not fully grasp how endangered the Rump felt itself to be by this prospect. It is more likely, though, that the Dutch were keen to emphasise their own economic concerns to the English, which, after the passing of the breathtaking Navigation Act in November 1651, spurred each member of the Dutch delegation to negotiate for its cancellation, even though they had nothing to offer the English in return, save a repetition of the earlier 36 articles that the Rump had previously found so underwhelming. This episode has been broken into four parts for easier listening. You've reached the end of part two, but not the end of the war. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So please check your downloads for the next installment of the First Anglo-Dutch War. This episode has been primarily concerned with examining the Anglo-Dutch competition, the incredible feats of the Dutch Empire, and the actions of the English Embassy that originally possessed such high hopes. In Part 3, we'll examine the war's outbreak, its course, and the fundamental underlying issues, as well as the martyrs, heroes, and villains on both sides. I hope you'll join me, and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.